0: to Life North of the 54th. I'm Garrett Brown, and it's a little different today because Preston is on a vacation in Europe, Galvantine across the countryside. So he won't be joining us today, but we have today with us Stephen Mackis. Steve, do you want to
1: introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, as was said, my name is Stephen, 31 years old. And uh, here, here's uh, definitely one of my longest standing and oldest and uh, one of my closest friends. So glad to be here. Uh, thanks, Stephen. How
0: have you been? It's been a while since uh, we got to sit and chat. I was hoping to catch up with you when I was in Alberta in the summer, but our schedules didn't line up very well.
1: No, yeah, lots of problems with work. I think the last time, yeah, face-to-face, would, that would have been Preston's wedding. Yeah, I think so. So in 2019. Which, I mean, wasn't all that long ago, I guess. But...
0: No, in part because I feel time passes. <laughs> it feels like time is passing quickly and not so quickly all at the same time. Yeah complex flow of time
1: i mean the older you get faster passes
0: yeah so yeah but it's great to talk to you you as well so thanks for joining me on this life north of the 54th i know you have spent a lot of time in the peace country <laughs> still am yes still do spend a lot of time in the peace country uh, yeah
1: i'm up here for work a
0: lot so so do you want to tell me Stephen, as some of what your earliest memories of the peace country are sort of like your first experiences with the peace country
1: yeah so i was like i was born in edmonton and my family we lived there for i want to say i was like either i want to say i was about six years old and then uh, my dad got a job up in grand prairie and good government job and so we relocated and then yeah i spent the rest of my childhood or youth as you'd say uh yeah just growing up there and then Years later, moved
2: back to Edmonton. But, you know,
1: I still try to come back every now and again. But yeah, earliest memory, definitely, definitely
2: the move up, I would say. Yeah. Big change at that age. Yeah. Do you remember the drive up? I do remember the drive up. Yes. I do. It was,
1: uh, I mean, when you're that young and you haven't really, like, even gone for, like, big trips where, especially, like, with a big scenery change, you know, that was, it was like the first big long road trip for me when I was really young. And it was going to a, a place like I'd only known the city at that point. Yeah. So anything was, wasn't, the city was strange and new and fascinating. Stuff.
0: Where did you move to first when you got to the peace country? Do you remember where your family
2: first settled? Uh, yeah. We, we first moved to an apartment in Grand Prairie for, I think like a year or two. It wasn't very long either way. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Moved away from there to uh, more to the countryside.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I met you. I that I really remember uh, meeting you as you lived out in Loughlass, and I think we went to visit your family. I think maybe I'm misremembering with a different family. There was a different family, the Fisher family, who also lived in Le
1: glass, I believe. Uh yeah, they weren't right in it, but they were close. Like they were, I think, only a ten-minute drive. So they were not far. Oh, okay, but yeah, because we, we became we became friends with your family before we moved out to Le glass. Oh, okay. And then did the ward swap once we moved out there. That's right.
0: But when you were out in the glass, we were on the same baseball team. Is that right? Or we were like opposite baseball teams?
1: No, no. You played, you played against me. Oh, right. You played against me. But yeah, so I remember I was playing on the baseball team that we had. It was not much of a team, but it was a team, I guess. And I remember I had not seen you, yeah, probably about three years. And then I remember your team coming up and just Completely mopping the floor <laughs> <laughs> wasn't Travis on that team too? yeah, I think
0: Travis and Preston were both on the team,
1: yeah, because um, I just remember you guys I remember you guys hitting just home like basically just home runs at that age <laughs> <laughs> it was
0: it was a slow pitch right It was underhand pitch only, yeah, and we yeah we practiced pretty intensely. I remember we had a few kids from I think my junior high school right from Harry Balfour, who were on the team. And I remember them practicing. Some of them were practicing to try and be like uh, fastball pitchers. That's like what they wanted to do is they wanted to play fastball. Okay. okay. So there were a few times where we were playing a little bit of
1: overhand pitching. So I guess we trained hard. I, I just remember because it was like, I think it was the first team of the season too. And you guys showed up, your team showed up, you had team uniforms. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, we're done.
2: <laughs> these,
1: these guys mean business oh man so i played backcatcher
0: when we did that when we played and mm-hmm. uh, i remember in that game i had a hard time with their like equipment because i i don't know i didn't really play baseball that much but yeah i was the backcatcher during that game and i had this face guard right with the you know like a hockey mask sort of thing with the wire mesh yeah, yeah. and i i had a hard time seeing the ball as it was coming in and it was slow pitch so it wasn't like it was super dangerous so i convinced the umpire that i didn't need the the mask and i took it off and the very next pitch bounced off of a rock and hit me in the face and it's just like okay i guess
2: i do remember that
0: uh okay yeah i guess that's right that was the only game we played
1: fun fact about that game that was the last year i ever played baseball yeah same here (laughs) It was actually the only game I ever
0: played, like the only official game, <laughs> because after that game we played, before the next game, our coach's house, unfortunately, burned down. Oh, no. And so he was not in a position to coach us anymore. And we stopped playing baseball. So in terms of official games, I'm at a 100% win streak. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm at about 100% loss,
1: So, Oh, no, Steven, it's all my fault. I was never, I was never really a baseball kid anyway.
0: Yeah. Did you have different hobbies aside from good old fashioned baseball?
1: Uh, in the glass, yeah. I I was well because like growing up, we didn't have a lot of money, right? So you know, yeah, you have you have outside. That's your that's your entertainment. So you know, like I was big on frisbee a lot when I was a kid. A lot of riding bikes, taking jump. Oh yeah. Uh, but street hockey was the big one for me. Nice. Just because we would always play with our neighbors. You know, it was me and my brother, and then the two brothers over there. They just right you know in the summer play play street hockey almost every day
0: was there a little elementary or junior high school in the la Glass area or where did you go
1: yeah there's a there's an elementary there i think it was k to eight i believe actually oh wow okay Most tiny tiny school yeah still there
0: yeah and then your family moved back to grand prairie in town and we ended up at the same high school time.
1: Uh, yeah. So funny story about how that happened. So my dad worked in town and the year before my parents had just bought like a brand new or something. and uh, it was really nice, you know, stuff like that. And then the one day when my dad was driving to work, he hit a deer and completely totaled it. Oh no. Luckily insurance would like, was going to cover the write off and, you know, reimburse and whatever. But the option then to my dad was... Because, like, he would, he wasn't the biggest on living in the country. Like, he liked hunting and stuff like that. But being in, he's more of a city guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, my mom gave him the option. It's like, okay, we can get a new car or we can get a new house. And then that's... So, my dad hitting a deer is how we moved back into town. Oh, man. Yeah, and then that was good. Yeah, like, being able to, I guess, reunite with an old friend again. Yeah. Cruise through high school. And, yeah, a lot of good memories there. Yeah,
0: I remember... Going over to your place a lot. I think out of all the friends from high school, well, to be honest, out of all of the friends from high school, you're the only person that I've talked to, yeah. who also like who, who I'm not family with and who I uh, went to high school with.
1: So from high school, it's like I mean we don't necessarily talk constantly, yeah, but we don't miss beat. So it's you, uh, Preston, and. Uh, if you remember Steph Boyd. I remember the Boyds, but no, I don't, not, I don't think I could picture their face. She was in track, so that's how we became friends. Okay. Uh, and still friends to this day. Nice.
0: Yeah, I remember going to your guys' place a lot. We went to your place a lot too, so.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it was either one or the other. One weekend is our place, and the next weekend is your place over the summer.
0: I definitely recall, towards the end of my time in high school, I was a little bit fed up with driving to school uh so i wanted to ride a bike which is a little ambitious since like my childhood home was like 10 kilometers out of town so it was just like country roads the whole way to school until like well i guess and then i had to go basically halfway through town to get there but i would more or less pass close to your house on the way
1: there was definitely because I remember when you started doing that, you impressed and Preston were like, oh, We're gonna do this. And I definitely remember, yeah, you came by my house. I think it was like two or three times that you went by, and I was like, You know, I'm gonna bike to school too. Yep, I remember meeting you on the, on the trail, and just the rest of that, like, nice weather of that, that school year is so a side bike every day.
0: Yeah, I remember breaking my bike on one trip. I don't know if you also damaged doors or, or not. I was trying to do something ridiculous, like, I went down a hill uh, across Bear Creek on eighty fourth
1: was that where you just folded that your like your entire rim in half yeah, yes, yeah, so I was going down
0: I think it was along eighty fourth is that right
1: yeah, yeah, I remember that just collapsed yes, I was going
0: down the hill on eighty fourth and I crossed over the bridge to the like the Musca-CP trail, and I turned hard really hard and I like slammed on my brakes and I was gonna like do something cool right, and skid around the corner or something, <laughs> <laughs> but my bike tire like my entire bike wheel just <laughs> folded completely in half. Yeah, that was that was not great. So I basically flipped my bike on its side and jumped on the wheel until I could get it to rotate around in a circle again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, just, I just need to make it to school.
0: Yeah, basically, it's like oh, I gotta get to school. I gotta get to class. Yeah, I talked with the shop teacher. It was the time it was Mr. Darianko, Mr. D, and he helped me bend it into a little bit better shape so that I could get home too. But yeah, I definitely had to replace that afterwards. <laughs> Which wasn't truly that awful because we had a pile of like a hundred junk bikes in uh, on our acreage, so I just had to find a new piece to put on.
1: I yeah, just build some bikes. I remember, the, I remember doing that.
0: Yeah, people would donate bikes to us, and we would just throw them in a huge stack. Eventually, we took the stack. I uh, was helping my dad clean out in our acreage, and we basically looking up all the scrap metal. We're going to take scrap metal to the scrap metal yard. We put a whole bunch of scrap metal on the flat deck, and then my dad just took a tractor or the Bobcat yeah. with a forklift, and he just Stabbed the middle of this stack of like 100 bicycles and just put it on the trailer. And I think I have a picture of it. If I do have a picture of it, I'll put it in, in the show notes and on the website so people can have a look at it. Okay. Yeah, that'd be a great picture. Yeah, it, it looks ridiculous. I also wanted to talk to you about computers, Steven. When we were in high school, we'd go over to your place and we'd play video games and talk about computer stuff. Mm-hmm. And you were the one who introduced me to the idea of overclocking. And you explained how to overclock your cpu and sort of even i think were you overclocking your ram too sometimes
1: i've always kind of strayed away from overclocking ram just for the fact that at least in the older systems (laughs) it was more prone to error i would say yeah and crashing yeah a lot more crashing whereas like cpus it's easy okay maybe you you don't have a yeah like it's basically you, you play a game you find a good multiplier good frequency and a good voltage and then just go from there yeah Whatever stable, but RAM is really tricky. I guess it's easier nowadays.
0: Yeah, I've never really had a computer that I was able to overclock before.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, because I typically like Apple computers, and I mean, that's like the antithesis of overclocking is getting a Mac. But I do have a Raspberry Pi, and I got a Raspberry Pi that it was a three B plus. Okay, and it was it was fine, and it was a little slow. But I was like, yeah, you know, it's a Raspberry Pi, so I expect it to be a little slow. And then for Christmas, I got a Raspberry Pi four okay i was like okay this is gonna be like much faster right and i got it and it felt slower than my raspberry pi 3 and so i was like okay something feels wrong here i looked into it and for some reason the default settings of my raspberry pi 4 had it a fixed clock speed of like 800 megahertz so it was Mm -hmm. even slower than the fixed clock speed of my raspberry pi 3 and i was like "Hmm, i'm gonna try it i'm gonna try it and then so i overclocked it to like one and a half or two gigahertz it was like two or three times as fast mm-hmm. and it was stable and and great and it's like okay this is great now i have what i feel like is a snappy and fast raspberry pi
1: i actually wanted i actually wanted to get into like i've kind of been out of the computer game for a while now yeah like as far as i guess the expertise that i was trying to have like as far as like i guess i'm a hardware guy Yep. but i you know just i really never I always had trouble with the hardware-software meshing. Yeah. The reason why I like hardware is because it's like a machine, right? It's just like, if this thing doesn't work, if you fix it, everything else should work. Right, right. It's not like that with computers. You know, code optimization and this, that. But Raspberry Pi, I kind of want to delve into a little bit. Yeah. And a little bit of Arduino, because it seems a little more hands-on. Raspberry Pi.
0: Yeah, that's what I've seen as well for Arduinos. I have not done anything with Arduinos, but I have seen them and i have seen them used the physics department here at the university of toronto does use arduinos for something mm-hmm. and my advisor my phd advisor he's teaching a course in scientific computing it was an undergraduate course and he didn't want to have some of like course requirements where you had to have some specific computer or something or to be able to do it so basically the scientific computing was he bought all of the students arduinos and they did their scientific computing on arduinos so it was just basically like equal for everybody they all had the same computer yeah and the budget for the course we because you could buy fifty or hundred Arduinos for a course and give everybody their own computer. They're pretty cool things. Yeah.
1: But the, the thing that interests me about it is the it's so like Raspberry Pi is kind of fixed more to proprietary boards, right? Like Yes. I think so. You know, like a lab or a group will make up a board and they will still sell the board off as their configuration or you know, the hat and stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas Arduino, it's just kind of like what's the word I'm looking for? It's like the the architecture of how Arduino is, right? You're more open to, I guess, interpretation. Okay. Like you can, for example, you can have your Arduino components with the advent of being able to get custom printed PCBs. Yeah. With the ability to put SMD components on it. Okay. Now you can just take the architecture of an Arduino and design your own PCBs. So it's still an Arduino, but the the design that you have made is completely custom and unique to whatever you want to do kind of thing yeah that's pretty cool a lot more solder <laughs> yeah i think that's another thing about
0: arduino it's a lot more soldering a lot
1: more
0: i don't recall but i i'm not sure that like the motherboard of an arduino has pins in the same way that a raspberry pi does right no raspberry pi has the pin interface so you can easily hook new components onto it and stuff like that for rapid testing or small prototyping
1: yeah so yeah arduino is definitely more prototype for sure but it's also the fact that yeah it like you c- you couldn't you can do pin setups and i've seen modules that people have made where it'll have like say two or three separate boards yeah but they'll kind of pack them together with little riser mounts and then just use ribbon cable to tie them all together yeah that kind of thing or stack them like the hats on raspberry pi i've seen that too
0: yeah that's pretty cool i'm interested in high performance computing as well which typically means supercomputer stuff but a supercomputer is essentially just a whole bunch of computers networked together. Yeah. The internet on one level or another is a supercomputer? Yeah, cloud computing. Yeah. But one of the things that I would be interested in doing if I had the opportunity to is to design or teach a course where we take like four or five or eight Raspberry Pis mm-hmm. and we basically start from Raspberry Pis and connect them together into like a a cluster configuration, and then run code on a distributed node sort of thing. To sort of like the practice of, hey, let's start with the idea of writing code for one CPU core, which is typically how things are done, then writing code for multiple CPU cores, which you can do on most modern CPUs, say multiple cores per CPU, Mm -hmm. and then writing code to run on multiple CPUs on multiple computers at the same time. And I think that a course like that would be really insightful and doing it on a small scale of Raspberry Pis where you spend you know, like 200 bucks to get four Raspberry Pis. Yeah. And then like another 200 bucks to get all of the other hardware and stuff that you want to put it together in a nice little box, make it look good. I think it would be pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, the coding would definitely be the challenge of it though, for sure.
0: Oh yeah. And also getting the software installed correctly. Mm-hmm. But I think that's all part of the appeal to it. Yeah, seeing how the software and hardware interact together.
1: Well, and then plus you have the factor of what is your software being tailored for? Like, what is the function of the cluster? Like, what is the, like, is it going to be crunching numbers? Is it going to be doing big calculations? Is it going to do probabilities? Like, there's like, what are you doing with it? Are you rendering? Like, there's a, t- there's a whole pile of things to do.
0: Right. Yeah. I think for a Raspberry Pi, since their GPUs are pretty weak sauce. Uh, be mostly CPU, but for me, scientific computing because that's mostly what I spend my time thinking about and doing. So, running simulations and solving equations okay to get scientific answers—that's the sort of approach. Because on one level, in order to scale large, like to really large systems, you have to have a fundamental understanding of how the software and the hardware interact together, yeah, and what you're doing to make it more efficient or to make it doable. And so, I think doing a course where you like put the hardware together. And you get the software working on it would be instructive.
1: Yeah. So I've actually been, so like I've been kind of like COVID kind of, you know, not being employed kind of on a tangent here. Yeah. Uh, not being employed for that period of time kind of dampened my interest in hobbies quite significantly. Yeah. And only within the last like year, I've been kind of picking them up again, but kind of like retro computing because that's what I started in, I've taken a lot of interest in. And if there's one thing I've noticed between, say, old computer systems, whether it be software games, is due to the fact that they had more limited hardware, the software had to be miles better and the code had to be way more optimized. Where now, code optimization isn't so much a thing anymore, because it's just, well, if we don't have enough code optimization, we'll just increase the computing power and we don't have to worry about it. Yep. I've noticed that too. And one of my favorite examples of code optimization, funny enough, uh, are you aware of the fast inverse square root?
0: I have heard of the algorithm, but I'm not, yeah, intimately
1: familiar with it. Um, So basically what it was, it was used in the Quake series to calculate and help render uh, lighting and reflections. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But really, really complex ones for that time. So, but the problem was was getting like I guess the geometry of it proper and getting it to render quickly and efficiently with the hardware at the time. And so they made up this equation, which was the fast inverse square root. And what it did is instead of giving a precise answer, it gave an approximate answer that was like say ninety eight percent accurate. Yeah, but it worked five times faster. Right. But it's kind of sad actually to see that as far as coding has gone, it's some places you still find it. Indie games actually is a big one Yeah, you find more optimized code, I find. Yeah, but I agree. In the, some of
0: the people I've talked to here in Toronto who work in software, a lot of the times it seems that the priority is more of get it done, than get it done well. And then on top of that, it makes optimization more difficult because you get a whole bunch of technical debt in terms of you have a whole bunch of code that works. but it's not working well and then suddenly you start putting more and more stuff on it and it just bloats and then trying to trim it down becomes even more difficult
1: the longer you go without fixing it mm-hmm. oh well i'll let you know later but there's uh there's actually a channel you might be interested in regarding that
0: yeah that, that would be great i do actually spend most of my spare hobby time either listening to people talk about tech or watching videos about tech and science
1: yeah, this guy was a Microsoft engineer. He's actually, so he's got his own channel now. Nice. He just does it from his garage, but he's a Microsoft engineer, and he was the guy who invented Task Manager. Oh. And he's a super nerd, but he's very, very big on code optimization. <laughs> so that might be right your wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, and considering the person who, you know, created Task Manager. That sounds like somebody who's very interested in optimization, just constantly going, why is my computer running so slowly? Who is taking up all of my RAM? Why is my CPU so high? Yeah. Okay, well, I don't know. We can, we can talk, I guess, Steve, we can talk a lot more about tech, but this is yeah. on one level or another <laughs> show about life in the peace country. And while I do know that lo- loads of computers are used in the peace country and some really interesting places, like in in the oil and gas industry, just out in the middle of nowhere on some pump house or in some flow box.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Anyway, we can, we can get back to it after, but thanks. That's, that's great. It's uh it's great to talk to you about tech. Mm -hmm. All right. Coming back a little bit. Do you have uh, any favorite spots in Grand Prairie or any places that you loved hanging out when
1: you were uh, a youth there? Grand Prairie. You know, honestly, a lot of it was, on the Bear Creek Trail, I spent a lot of time there. Yeah, when I lived in the city, uh, mostly because of my bike. Mm-hmm. But the same thing out in the glass is a lot of it. We had like bike spots, right? So the glass where it is, every cardinal direction out of that town is either highway or gravel, gravel road going through farms. So yeah, we just bikes, bikes, take them out of the city. Yeah, let's go find some cool spots. I don't, I don't know if I really had like a. Really favorite hangout spot. I don't know. I have. I had a lot, but none, not not one that stuck out in particular. I would say. Yeah. I do really
0: enjoy the Muskeg Park trails.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's nice. Yeah. I I I really miss it being in Toronto. There's. I feel like you can get some similar stuff in Edmonton, but not not quite the same in Toronto. Maybe it's because I live so close, so downtown. Right. Or just skyscrapers everywhere. <laughs> there are trails like that, but they're not like the Muscat CP one where they're all paved. Sometimes here it's just packed gravel or like packed dirt, Oh okay. which isn't the same for biking or going around on small wheels like a scooter or a skateboard. No, no. What kind of, did you have any jobs? Did you work at all when you were in high school?
1: Yeah, I, like, I mean, it's kind of off as it sounds or maybe weird to some. I actually started working like as like a, an official job, not not a paper rope. I did a paper rope before, but I like an actual job job was my first had one and I was working for a drywall company when I was 12 years old was all I was doing was hauling out scrap drywall throwing it in the dumpster sweeping floors and I got paid like I don't know, five bucks an hour something like that which at the time for a 12 year old is a lot <laughs> you know yeah go after school go basically carry out garbage for three four hours and 20 bucks
0: yeah you were twelve. I worked with you on that job too, right?
1: Yeah. So, so I remember because you asked me when we were in high school. So I already been working there for a while. Oh, I'd already been working with Todd for like three seasons by that point.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, I I I also had that like a drywalling job in high school, and it was a great learning experience. I think. Yeah, the, our boss was was great and kind yeah. and very helpful, and would. Take time to teach us life lessons, <laughs> but also got to learn a little bit about how drywall works and why homeowners are so frustrated when they
1: have to do their own drywall. Uh, but on the upside, anytime you need to fix drywall, it's easy. Yeah, it's
0: much, much better. I actually, when we first moved to Toronto, the basement we moved into, the, the homeowner was just finishing up touch-up renovations. Mm-hmm. And we were staying in an Airbnb and we needed to move in as soon as possible. And they were trying to finish up the renovation so that, you know, we could move in. And I was like, hey, I can do some drywall. I will come and do the drywall for free so that we can move in sooner. And they're like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that.
1: <laughs> um, and then, yeah, through I would say through like I stopped working for a bit in high school, but that's a whole other story as to why I stopped working. But the main, main important part is that I did stop working for most of it. And then towards the end of it, I got a... I stayed in construction for a bit, doing odd jobs. I worked for a, like a reno company that was all right. And then I got a job with a spray foam insulation company, which great concept. I love the idea that, you know, it was, it was good for the environment as, as regards to, you know, how well it heats your homes. But man, is it really terrible for your health?
0: Yeah. Did you find it negatively affecting your health when you were working for it?
1: Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hundred percent um you know aside from the dust but i mean you wear dust masks all the time yeah it was more so the chemicals that are used to make it right like you can only you can only filter so much of it yeah out of your breathing space yeah but when i left the job i remember i distinctly remember it was like a month or two later after i'd left and i realized i had lost my sense of smell because it came back wow that's kind of scary i was like I i can smell stuff what the heck and taste, I guess, did your taste change too? That weirdly enough, my taste did not change. Oh, just smell. Oh, wow. yeah. And then I'm just kind of, and I got a job with Planetin. Yeah. And then I've kind of been in the oil and gas sector, not necessarily in the field. A lot of it was spent in the shop, but I've stayed in that uh, sector ever since then.
0: Yeah, so that was sort of a transition for you from high school to adult world, like adulting. Was it also sort of like transition from construction
1: to oil and gas? Yeah. I don't know if a transition to adulting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because uh, for me personally, it really took a long time to really kind of, I guess, grasp what that meant. Yeah, for sure. And like kind of figure that out for myself. Like I would easily into my late 20s for sure. I agree with you, Stephen. I moved to Fort St. John
0: basically after finishing high school and worked in a tire shop for a year. And then I served a mission for the church in England for two years and then got back to the peace country and then went down to Utah to go to school. And I did my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. But it really wasn't until towards the end of my bachelor's degree or really when I moved to Toronto that I began to understand the adulting experience. Yeah. And like what it means to be an adult. And like, you know, by then you're like in your late 20s, basically starting to be 30. Yeah. It takes a long time, and even though I had like distinct transitions from like moving cities and countries, it was still a number of years before I really
1: realized what it meant to be adulting. Yeah, I thought uh, I definitely thought like in my head at the time, you know, being young and naive, that moving to a different city would make me more of an adult. Yep, and that kind of motivated me to move to Edmonton all those years ago. Yeah, but it didn't I would say the final hurdle really was through long periods of self-reflection during my time off in COVID. I think that was
2: the the final one where I kind of came into my own and actually felt like I was an adult for the first time. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. So Steve, how have your feelings for the peace country evolved over the years then? I mean, I am hoping
0: for both of us that we have at least twice as long to spend together as friends, but in your brief years now and i guess in your reflection how how things changed in your view of the peace country?
1: Uh yeah. So like when I moved when I moved away, I don't know, there's there was a little bit of bitterness and disdain. And that like another another factor of motivating me for moving away. I was like I just needed a change of scenery. It was feeling stale. Yeah. And there's actually like a few years after I moved where I didn't come back up here. Like I just I didn't want to. a very long time and then you know started making more concerted effort to travel up to visit you know family and friends a little bit more often for sure so there was yeah there was definitely a period where i was like yeah i don't want to go back there i don't like that place but you know again as i've gotten older and more of an adult and more mature i would say i definitely forgot how great it is
2: actually (laughs) so
1: how much i like it here
0: yeah I know Edmonton shares a lot in terms of seasonal change, but every summer, I miss the summers of the peace country. Yeah. They are just incredible with the really long days and essentially the mild temperatures. I know occasionally it gets warm, but it's not often humid. It's not often hot, but you can just enjoy the day basically all day.
1: Yeah. Well, and especially too, like now I it, I'm definitely I'm definitely kind of done with the city and I'm actually looking to move back
2: next year. Mm. So
1: somewhere in Grand Prairie there, rent a place. I The ideal goal would be to get an acreage. So I'm
2: kind of. I don't know.
1: Just want to kind of make full circle, I guess.
2: Come back home. <laughs> yeah. In a way.
1: Yeah. A couple of years ago when we went back to Grand
0: Prairie in the peace country to visit. I remember driving up basically out of the Smoky River Valley over like past Byzantin and heading back and it's just sort of difficult to disentangle and difficult to fully explain. But like the feeling of having been away for a while, for many years and then going back, it's sort
2: of, it feels like home because, you know, I grew up there and it feels nostalgic and memorable
0: and, it's really difficult for me to disentangle those like really positive and like happy feelings of the peace country mm-hmm. from the nostalgia of my childhood with the idea that it's also actually really beautiful up there in the summertime. Yeah. And just the stunning, like shallow rolling Hills with the open fields and the trees and the hills. And if you're really lucky, you can see the glints of the mountains in the far distance. Yeah. There's like, yeah, there's something quite stunning about it. But I totally agree with the the city life and the country life. I think having experienced a pandemic in such a big city
2: it's very motivating for me to not live in the city my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Well, if I if I do move next year, I'll it'll be 13 years I've lived in Edmonton. So I've actually by next year I'll have
1: lived in Edmonton longer. My entire life than I ever have in ground Wow. But that being said, I'm just, I'm kind of done with city life. Yeah. Maybe I'm getting old. Maybe that's part of it. <laughs> i an old man prematurely. And it's like, I just want to sit on my porch in the country. Yeah. Watch the sunrise. Yeah. But I, I definitely, I definitely share the sentiment of coming back up in the nostalgia. And, you know, for a first little bit, it's like you said, it, the the tangling of the nostalgia. And your childhood, in the area, and it's like no. I think just the area is just like a lot nicer, and I think you would have to, you know, spend a lot of time there to really appreciate it. Who's got it? It does have it. Like winters are cold.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: really yep. cold.
0: Absolutely. snow. Yep, and they last a long time. It's uh, see, it, for me, it would be practically unfeasible for me to move back to the peace country, like. You know, north of Edmonton all the way to to Grand Prairie, Mm -hmm. mostly because it would be such a shock and difficulty for my wife. Like, just being in the cold for so long would be hard. Yeah. Edmonton seems reasonable, but I think farther than that would be difficult. It definitely has cold days in Edmonton. It does, yeah. Last
1: couple of years, we've had some really cold winters.
0: Yeah. So I have another philosophical question for you, Stephen. Mm. Just my jam. How do you feel that living in the peace country has influenced your outlook on life? Hmm. That sort of question is sort of comparing, you know, growing up in the peace country compared to a hypothetical had you not grown up in the peace country. How do you think you'd
1: view the world differently because of it? I think growing up in the peace country was only half of it. I think I needed to have that contrasting environment to not only just appreciate the area. And appreciate the, you know, the growing up and the the great times that I had there. But just as an outlook on life in general, for example, life doesn't need to go fast. In the city, it always goes fast, but it doesn't need to be. There's a lot of inherently good beauty in nature. Yeah, for sure. Right. So, and once I got into that, it's like you start to see that same natural beauty wherever you go, rather than it just being like a local place, like, oh, this is this is the only beautiful place in the world kind of thing. It's like now I see it as like, you know, I like the peace country because it's unique in itself. Very, that Grand Prairie is very, it's kind of tucked in this little valley. Yeah. It's close to the mountain range, but it's also, it's also a plain. It's weird. But then I start seeing
2: that same kind of uniqueness in other places as well. Yeah. That's really insightful. I started to see, I guess, in a way, I started to see the
1: world, in a way, with a wider lens. I would say especially in the last couple of years. Yeah. But I don't know if I would have gained that perspective had I not seen
2: the other side of it. The side I'm not so keen on. Yeah, yeah. On one level, it's difficult to appreciate the beauty of it if you are always surrounded
0: by the beauty and never see anything else. Yeah.
1: And even Edmonton. Edmonton's beautiful in its own right actually i think
0: oh yeah I, yeah this past summer there it was incredible
1: yeah it is is absolutely beautiful city and you know but again
2: it's just a, it's a place that has its own merits and has its own, its own natural beauty yeah maybe i'm just biased maybe i'm just biased to my my home soil yeah that's true i suspect that the density of people
0: does make a difference on one level as another example this past summer, when we were in Alberta, we went to Banff, and Banff was you know it was a gorgeous national park. but when we went, it was a Saturday, and it was packed with so many people like there was just people everywhere and it was great to enjoy it, but it was also difficult to enjoy it because everyone was enjoying it at the same time right then a few days later, we went down to Waterton National Park and we went
2: on a Tuesday and it was so much emptier and just it was easier to appreciate the beauty of it without being distracted by the people and you know on one level people would say that Banff is more beautiful because it
0: certainly has features that are unique and stunning but another level waterton was so peaceful to be there yeah and to sort of spend time what felt like more my own pace instead of the pace of everyone else trying to see everything else at the same time.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Holy. I think, I think there's a, like when it comes to especially stuff like that, I think there's a time and place for a lot of people.
2: For sure. And then there's a time and place for not a lot of people. And actually, funny enough, I'm actually in Dawson Creek right now. I'm not even in Alberta. Nice.
1: I mean, it's kind of just like, it's still technically the peace country actually.
0: It is. In some ways, I feel like going a little bit farther north out of Grand Prairie is more deeply the peace country than, than Grand Prairie itself. Grand Prairie gets a lot of stuff from Edmonton in terms yeah. of feel and flow to it. Yeah. But when you go out of the, you know, the biggest city in the, in the peace country to some of the smaller ones and you know more closely towards the Peace River itself, yeah, you
1: get more of the peace country feel. Yeah, once you get closer to like the saddle hills and stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Do you have some other thoughts you want to share, Stephen? Um or any questions
1: for me. Um I mean, obviously at any time it's great to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks. It's <the> same, likewise. <laughs> that'll that'll be a, a thing that always remains, but you know, uh I think it's pretty neat that you're doing this uh this show. I think it's uh, I listen to, I think I listened to like one or two episodes. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. So, maybe I'm one of those four.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know that there are really very few people who listen to this podcast. And for me personally, I tried really hard to get a show out every month. Mm -hmm. And this past summer, we took a bit of a break, so I think that's fine. So, we're sort of aiming for 10 episodes a year. Okay. So, this is in one way or another, unofficially or officially season two. Hey but one of the largest motivations about doing this podcast is taking time to talk with people you know that i knew growing up or that uh, were part of my life growing up or you know that had similar experiences to me growing up because like you during the pandemic i was reflecting on sort of you know the state of the world and my own personal feelings and being in a big city and it just being so difficult sort of feeling trapped and frustrated right i kind of struggle to you know stay connected with people generally and so I thought if I had something where I was like, I'm even though only, you know, four or five people listen to the show, I do want to try and have a consistent show for myself as something that like, I do want to consistently do this. And so that gives me like motivation and push to reach out to people and to talk to people and to you know, talk about their life, catch up with them. Yeah. See how they're doing.
2: I mean, it's good.
1: I I think it's, I think it's really good. And I think like, Specifically, uh, I guess the topic you're going after, right? Not a lot of people are that, at the very base level, you're, you're kind of chronicling experiences in the area with the people you grew up with, and that, at the very least, is like, okay, well, there's there's some stories, right? You know, maybe it's not popular now, but maybe down the road it will be. But at the same time, I think it's kind of cool that you're you're getting out there to try to share these people's stories and experiences from uh, an area that I would. Say, I mean, at least I hold dear to my heart. I would assume you probably do as well. Yeah. Thanks. And who knows? Maybe it'll take off. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes it does. Sometimes you go, yeah, sometimes it does. Maybe no. Maybe your next episode or two episodes, three episodes down the road, you'll be all of a sudden, boom, hundreds, hundreds of people listening. Yeah. uh, Snowballing from there. I think the big, the big part is, at least for you specifically, if like if I were doing it, Like, as long as it's it's something like a a little project that you're passionate about, right? Yeah. You're passionate about it, and you have fun doing it. You have fun talking to people. good a little laugh, whatever. I think that's all that matters.
0: Yeah, I do also really enjoy the creative process of it. I enjoy the recording of it and talking with people. It's really great to catch up with people and hear their stories. Maybe part of it is the motivation that when I was younger, I didn't spend a lot of time talking with people. But I spent a lot of time listening to people talk about their stories. Right. Some of them were just, you know, like hunting stories from the region or people's experiences of the area or a little bit of history of the area. But generally just people having conversations about this, that or the other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I always thought that they were great and fascinating stories. So I think taking the time to, as you say, chronicle them, yeah, sort of capture them on some level so that others can enjoy the stories too. Yeah, well, exactly. I think that's, I think that's important. So then having four or five people a month listening to the stories it's sort of like having a small group of friends get together and, you know, have someone share their life story and everybody gets a chance to listen. That's kind of nice.
1: Yeah, just hang out, have a little chat and
2: talk about stuff, you know? <sighs> well, thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah, man, of course. All right, I, I appreciate the, the invitation of
1: being part of your show, being a guest on the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming and for taking the time to catch up with me, have a chat. Yeah,
2: man.
1: Yeah,
0: anytime. Anytime. Message me, call me, whatever. Sure. Thanks. And you can message me anytime, too.
2: If I don't get
1: back to you, it's because I can't get back to you. Not because
0: I don't want to get back to you. Yes. Yeah, that's how it is for me, too. And Preston will get to listen to the show like every other listener and get it
1: when it comes out. How long has he gone for? A few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I've been meaning to... I wouldn't say we talk regularly, but I do talk to Preston. Yeah.
2: I've
1: been meaning to like hang out with him, but it's just like, I don't know, the last last year and a bit have been kind of hectic for me. So between work and then other stuff, it's been hectic. And I feel bad because it's like there's a lot of friends where I've kind of been like, yeah, we should hang out sometime. And it has happened
2: mm-hmm.
1: in a lot of ways. I feel bad, especially for Preston. Right. Yeah. But that's why you guys are such good friends is because just pick up where we left off. Yeah, it's great. I really appreciate that. They say that is the, the test of a true friend. But when you see a friend after many years, it's as if you never missed a day between. I appreciate you being a friend like that for me, Stephen. Yeah, man. I appreciate you you being the same friend, Garrett. We have known each other for most of our lives, so there's that. That's also true.
2: Since we were we children. <laughs> yep. Now now we're in our thirties. We're getting old. Yeah getting old well i guess i'll end on saying
1: you know like i think this, what you're doing here is pretty great and i think that more people need to talk about their life stories and just life in general i think people need to do that more and share or either even listen i think there's something for everybody out there i think yeah i think what you're doing is good thank you and,
0: then, and thank you to those who do listen if you want to email us feedback ask us questions or write in a story for us to share you can email us at life north of the 54th at gmail.com we're really grateful for you to come on the show with steven like i said i'm uh, grateful to be here thanks i hope you have a great day yeah uh you as well see you around and talk to you again
1: yeah for sure bye